right. Uh, if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you have one, or the ones from the pew backs in front of you, and open up to Ephesians 4. I'm going to read our scripture verse for today for Trey's sermon, and it's Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and then I'm going to pray for Trey and for the sermon. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of, of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just ask that as Trey comes up here um, to speak to us, Lord, that you would just open our our ears and our minds and our hearts, God, to what you have to say to us and that you would just help us learn, uh, learn from your word, God, and just let us learn something new and something that we can apply to our lives, Lord, and take out of here and apply to our weeks and just live by your word, God. Just pray for this service and everybody that's here that you would just let it be an encouragement and edifying to you, Heavenly Father. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Well, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapter 4 is where we just read from. And uh, we're going to wrap up our series this morning, uh, our January New Year's sermon series called uh, New You in the New Year. We've been exploring some of the resources of the New Covenant that God has given us to make us new people, to change us, and to make us new creation people this new year. We've talked about various resources, and this morning we're going to talk about the last resource, the last thing that I want to highlight, the last avenue that God uses to make us new people in the new year is what I will call a new community, and that is God uses you and I, other believers in Christ, with our flaws, with our strengths, and uh, with our weaknesses and personalities and differences to shape us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. You know, I came across a story that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to start with, and it's a story about the 1976 uh, Special Olympics. I'll go ahead and read the, the article to you. Years ago, at the 76 Seattle Special Olympics, nine contestants lined up at the starting line for the 100-yard dash. At the sound of the gun, they all started off in their own way, making their best effort to run down the track towards the finish line. That is, except for the one young boy who stumbled soon after his start, tumbled to the ground, and began to cry. Now two of the other uh, racers, hearing the cries of the boy who fell, slowed down and turned back to look at him. Without hesitation, they turned around and began running in the other direction, away from the finish line and toward the injured boy. While the other contestants struggled to make it to the finish line, the two who had turned around to run in the other direction reached the boy and started helping him to his feet. All three of them then linked arms together as they walked, arm in arm, to the finish line. Uh, By the time the trio reached the end, everyone in the stands was standing and cheering, some with tears rushing down their faces. Even though by turning back and helping the the fallen boy, they lost their own chance to win the race, they all had smiles on their faces because they knew they had done the right thing. 
As I ran across that story in preparation for my sermon this morning, I thought it was very fitting as we begin to talk about how God uses other Christians, this new community, I'll call it, to shape us into new people. You know, I think this story illustrates two perspectives, two ways in which we can live the Christian life, two ways in which we can run the race of the Christian life, as Paul likens it. Uh, number one, we can live it uh, the first way by simply disregarding other people's needs, by simply disregarding the, the faults and the cries of others, and pursuing the Christian life on our own. This is a, uh, an individualistic perspective on the Christian life. This is, I live the Christian life my way as I want it without the help of anyone else. It's kind of uh, my way of doing it. Now, the other one, the other one is illustrated, of course, by the two uh, young men and women who turned around to help the fallen child. You know, we can also live life in a different way. We can see other people's faults. We can see other people's needs as well as our own, and we can arm in arm, lock hands together, and walk the Christian life towards the finish line knowing that we can't do it on our own, knowing that we need others to help us to run the race well and to finish the race of the Christian life. And so in our last sermon of uh, New You in the New Year, we're going to discover that God makes us new people uh, by a myriad of ways, but by giving us a new community. He gives us a new community, other believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in the faith that help us, they shape our character so that we can become the new creatures that God wants us to be. And so if you have your Bibles open, turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 4. What we're going to do is uh, simply a couple things for this sermon. First of all, we're going to analyze this new community character. Uh, What we're going to look at in verses 1 through 3 is the kind of character that Paul calls us to have as Christians, and particularly as we relate to one another. And what I want us to see is that this kind of character, these kind of character traits, these kind of virtues, if you will, uh, are the kind of things that God uses to make us into new people. So we're going to analyze this new community character, but then secondly, we're going to apply it. We're going to take a look, uh, hopefully a long while, at what does this look like? What does it look like for God to shape these character traits in us through other people, through other Christians, to make us into new people? So let's start in Ephesians 4 by analyzing this, this new community, the kind of character that we're supposed to have in this new community. Uh, while certainly when you look in the New Testament, if you read through the New Testament, what you'll find out is that there are all sorts of ways that other Christians are supposed to help us run the race of the Christian life. They are uh, to encourage us, the Bible says. They're to keep us accountable, the Bible says. They're supposed to to love us, the Bible says. There are all sorts of ways and avenues and means uh, by which other Christians help us run the race. But there's one way that I think is oftentimes overlooked. There's one way that I think is oftentimes underappreciated, one way that God uses us and shapes our character, and it's through the differences. It's through the shortcomings, and yes, it's even through the sin that other Christians perpetrate against us. These are the kind of things that God uses in a community, in a church, to make us new people. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. Would God be making a new you? Would God be growing you in your faith? Would God be shaping your character? Number one, if you were more humble. We talked about humility uh, this morning in our Sunday school class, and it was, it was a great discussion. If you were more humble uh, in 2013 than you were in 2012, if you were more outward focused, if you considered the, uh, others' needs more than your own, and if you began to truly love yourself just as you uh, love others as you love yourself, would that, would that be shaping you? Would that make you 
you knew this year? What if you were gentler? What if you were less harsh? What if when other Christians just got on your nerves and they started to annoy you, instead of uh, being angry or rude, you were gentle? Would God be shaping your character? What if you were more patient? What if when another Christian wronged you, or what if there's a perceived wrong and there's a conflict and you're upset with them, if you were more patient with them, if you bear, uh, bore with them in love, if you continued to have a relationship with them, would God be making a new you in 2013? And church, what's the correct answer to those questions? The answer is, Yes, most absolutely. And the same is true of me. And what Paul is going to share with us in verses 1 through 3 is that that is exactly what God does through the body of Christ. He takes our faults. He takes our differences. He takes our preferences. He even takes our sin against one another. And he uses all of those things to shape our character, to make us into humble people, to make us into gentle people, and to make us into patient people people. So let's read together once again Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and we're going to focus in on verse 2, but let's just read it together uh, for some context, and then we're going to take a look at three attitudes. We're going to take a look at three attitudes that Paul says uh, if we partake in these attitudes, if we put on these three attitudes, number one, unity will be preserved. It's going to promote unity in the church if we act with humility, patience, and gentleness. But not only that, it's going to shape us as well. So let's read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4 once again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Verse 2, he's going to flesh this out. What, what does it look like for Christians to live a life worthy up to the calling that we have received? Well, he's going to give three attitudes, three unity-preserving, new creation-shaping uh, attitudes that we should have in verse 2. Number one, he says, be completely humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. And then he explains what he means by being patient. Bearing with one another in love. He sums it up this way. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so as we analyze this new character that we're supposed to have, really I want us to focus in on these three attitudes. First of all, look at the first one in verse 2. He says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. As I said before, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about humility, and he described it this way. Guys, I told you that I would include what we talked about because it's a good definition of humility. Uh, in chapter, I don't know what we're on, 14 maybe, this is what C.S. Lewis says about uh, humility. Uh, he says the enemy wants him. Oh, by the way, the enemy is God in this context, right? He says the enemy, that is God, in the end, uh, wants him, speaking of the patient, to be free from any bias in his own favor so that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. He continues to say he wants each man, and of course woman, in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill, here's the part where he, I think, defines humility. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible. But it is his long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity, a gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. 
he describes this humility, I think, in a biblical way. When you look through the New Testament and you want to define this idea of what it means to be humble, essentially at the core of the definition is an others-focused. It's looking outside of ourselves to the needs and the considerations and the preferences of others. As Lewis says, the killing of the animal self is what it means to be humble. Simply put, to consider other people, what they want, what they desire, and consider ourselves um, uh, as equals to them, and yet considering them first. So he talks about humility, the first thing that promotes unity and that God wants us to have, and God uses other people to shape us, is humility. But the second one, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, be completely humble and what, church? Gentle can be uh, completely humble and gentle. The idea of gentleness essentially means when you are annoyed, when you are bothered, when, uh, when a, a conflict comes a- upon you, it's the idea of controlling your emotions. It's the idea of not flying off the handle or res- in responding with rudeness or harshness, but giving a gentle, patient, controlled response. It's the idea of controlling your emotions in the heat of battle. So he says, number one, be, be humble. Consider others more important than yourself. And number two, be, be gentle in the midst of conflict and, and, uh, and, and annoyances. And then number three, he says, be patient. Notice what he says there at the tail end of verse two. Be completely humble and gentle. And then he says, number three, be patient. Be patient. And then he defines that. What does it mean to be patient? Well, well he tells us. He says, be patient Bearing with one another, how? Angrily? Bearing with one another begrudgingly? Bearing with one another in frustration? No, what does he say, church? Bearing with one another in what? In love. Bearing with one another in love. And so when you look at this phrase, here's the meat of it. Essentially what Paul says is that when you are wronged by another Christian, you will be wronged by another Christian, and you will wrong other Christians yourself. When that happens, what you need to do is you need to be patient. And what that means is you need to bear with them and continue to love them, to continue to have their best interest in mind, to continue to act in a way that is for their benefit, not to retaliate, not to break the relationship off completely, not to seek revenge, but simply to continue to do what is best for them. To be patient, literally, it just means put up with them. Sometimes we just need to put up with each other, not sever a relationship, but just continue on, continuing on in the body of Christ. And so we've analyzed the kind of character that God wants us to have as we relate to one another. It preserves and it promotes unity in the church, but also when we undertake having humility and patience and gentleness Guess what? God shapes us. God shapes our character as well as the character of other believers as we interact with them. And so what I want to do for the remaining minutes that we have is apply this. I want to apply this new community character. So number one, I want to ask a question. We're going to flesh this out in a way that hopefully is is meaningful and practical. But I want to ask a question. When you hear these kind of attitudes, when you hear these kind of responses, is it a description of you? You have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, as a Christian, how, how humble am I being? Am I considering others as, as well as my own? Am I looking out for their interests, or do I simply push for my way, wanting to do it how I have always done it? What about gentleness? How am I in controlling my emotions? When the heat is on, when the conflict is fresh, not responding with rudeness or harshness of tone, but, but am I gentle? How about you? 
What about patience? What about when you're wronged? What about when you feel wronged or there's an actual wrong? What if, what if a Christian says something about you or to you and you're frustrated? It offends you. Are you patient with them? Do you bear with them in love or do you just say, forget it. I'm not going to have a relationship with them. I'm not going to come to church anymore. Forget about it. How do you respond? How are you doing with these three attitudes? You will know by your reactions. You will know how you're doing in the heat of the moment, in the midst of the battle, when the confrontation comes, when the, when the, uh, the person who's annoying to you comes your way and they say something. You're not going to know just by preparing yourself. You're going to know when the conflict comes. Uh, again, it's kind of a C.S. Lewis day, I suppose. In Mere Christianity, he, he says this. He rightly observes uh, about how our, the conflict brings out whether we're humble and gentle or patient or not. Notice what he says. He says, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Ouch. If there are, <laughs> I love this illustration. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. It's happened to all of us before, right? But the suddenness does not create the rats. The suddenness doesn't create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding in the same way, the suddenness of the provocation, that is the altercation, the conflict, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me ill-tempered. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man that I am. Boy, isn't that true? When it's just in the heat of the moment, what comes out of our mouth, is it patience or gentleness or humility or not? The rats are in the cellar. You know, as I heard that, I thought, you know, I've got some rats in my cellar, you know. I've got some rats in my cellar as it relates to how I respond to other Christians, whether it be my wife or some of you or some of my friends elsewhere who are believers. You have any rats in your cellar? Well, if you do, th- that's okay. God has some avenues, some attitudes, some, uh, some rat catchers, some, uh, some mouse traps, if you will, to help us catch the rats in the cellar. And it's simply working on, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these three attitudes. So let's take a look at them, and let's flesh them, flesh them out a little bit. Number one, the first attitude is humility. We've defined humility already. It's, it's essentially considering others, right? It means not pushing for our own way, not having to do it the way we want to do it. And my humble suggestion to you is that God uses other Christians to build this humility in us in a couple of ways. Number one, I think God uses other Christians' different thoughts. That is, that other Christians think about life and theology and all sorts of practical things differently than you and I, about, about thoughts, and then secondly, about preferences. That is, Christians think differently about certain things, and they have certain preferences. And I think it's the different thoughts, and it's the different preferences that God uses to build humility in us. And so let's begin with, with the different way of thinking. Other Christians think about all sorts of things differently than you. Do you realize that? Other Christians think differently about a myriad of things other than, uh, different than you. Number one, they think about politics differently. They think about the party and the platform very differently than you do. Regardless of what you think about this platform or that platform, this president or that president, the truth of the matter remains that genuine Christians who are committed to the Bible think differently about that. Is one wrong? Is one right? Are there differences? Sure, we can debate that endlessly, but we have to recognize people think, Christians think differently about politics. Number, number two, they think differently about the economy. What 
should we do? How should we fix it? What's good economic policy? It ranges from here to here on the scale of genuine Christians, about sociological issues, about issues in society. Christians think differently about these things, about theological if, uh, differences. Have you ever met a Christian that differed in theology from you? If you've ever met a single Christian, then yes. The answer is yes, you have. Because I don't think there's any one Christian who views everything in the Bible, every theological issue, every verse exactly the same. We have differences. Now certainly we, we, we hold to the core. We, we hold to that which is, which, which is primary, which is the closed-handed issues. But outside of that, there are, are a slew of open-handed issues. And the question is, in your theology, in your politics, in your sociology, in your uh, economics, and, and a whole slew of other, other, other ways that we think, do you respond with humility towards your fellow Christian? Along those lines, I found an example of uh, some old pastors. Uh, they were pastors in the 18th century, George Whitfield and Jonathan Wesley. I don't know if you've heard those guys or not. Uh, Wesley uh, is related to the Methodist uh, denomination, Whitfield uh, otherwise. And there's a story that's told, and, and I'd like to share it with you. And in his book, Dwight Edwards shares this story. And this is what he says. He says, this is, there's a wonderful illustration of this in the life of John Wesley. I'll just read what he says. He, <clears throat> he and George Whitfield were contemporaries, and their ministries often crossed paths. They were both evangelists and pastors and preachers and theologians. There was a time that there had been a significant rift between the two of them over Calvinism and Arminianism. However, they reconciled and remained good friends right up to the end. Their followers, though, were not always as gracious. And then he tells this story. Right after Whitfield's death, a follower of Wesley asked him if he had heard that the Reverend Whitfield had passed away. Wesley responded. Uh, Wesley uh, replied, uh, No, no, I, I'm saddened to hear that. The woman then asked, Do you suppose that we'll see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? Do you suppose we'll see him in heaven? She asked. Her point was obvious. She didn't think that Whitfield was a true believer because he did not follow their Wesleyan theology. Wesley uh, responded that he did not expect to see Whitfield there. He said, no, I don't don't anticipate to see him there. She then eagerly pressed him, well then, you don't really believe he was converted? You don't really believe he was a Christian? To which he responded marvelously, converted? Of course he's converted. Of course he's converted. But do I expect to see him in heaven? Do I expect to see him? No, I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I doubt that I will be able to see him. Isn't that a marvelous example of humility in just one way in which we differ in our thinking? Well, what about our personal preferences? We all have personal preferences on a myriad of things, and as Christians, we hold to those personal preferences on a whole host of things. We differ over a slew of non-essential gray areas, that is, areas that are morally neutral. The Bible doesn't say to do it, or the Bible doesn't say not to do it. They're just gray. They're areas of neutral uh, areas. For example, we differ on style of worship. Some of us like hymns, some of us like contemporary, some of us like a mix, some of us like 
Celtic Christian music. Some of us like Christian rap. Some of us like a, a whole host of Christian music and, and, and preferences. What about standard of living? You know, in some Christian circles, there's a certain standard of living that a Christian is supposed to have. A Christian is supposed to be poor. A Christian is supposed to be rich. We have differences over what is right as it comes to standard of living. What about, what about method of schooling? I don't know if that's such a big issue here, but where I came from in Dallas, this was often uh, a source of debate in the Christian circle. Do you send your kids to public schools? Do you send your kids to private schools? Do you homeschool? Oh, that was a fierce one. What about parenting styles? What about discipline styles? Do you spank or do you not? How do you parent them? Certain pa- I, would, I wouldn't allow my child to do that. Would they allow them to do this? Parenting styles. We differ on parenting styles. What about modesty? How do you define modest? Is this kind of a skirt modest? Is that kind of a top modest? Are those boots modest? Are they not? We disagree on modesty. What about movies or, or music that's acceptable? What about movies that are rated R or PG-13 or PG or G? Which one is acceptable? Which one is not? What about music? Is it acceptable to listen to music that's not explicitly Christian? Or do we have to stick to that? Christians disagree on these areas of preference. Again, I'd like to share from C.S. Lewis. It's a C.S. Lewis kind of day. C.S. Lewis talked about when he first got converted and he first entered into the church and how it taught him to be humble. So let's see if I can find this page from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says this, again, I believe from your Christianity. He said, quote, When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. Some Christians want to do that. They just think they can do it on their own. They think they can run the race by themselves. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. (laughs) That basically means he thought the music stunk. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against, notice, I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and of different education, and they gradually, and, excuse me, and then gradually my conceit, my pride, isn't that what we're talking about? And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just six-rate music, were nonetheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you, hear this, that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying? That the church teaches us humility. We have different thoughts. We have different preferences. But when we respond to those different thoughts, and when we respond to those different preferences with humility, guess what? God begins to make us new people. So we've talked about humility. But what about gentleness? What does it look like for us to respond in gentleness and for God to make us into new people? I think one way that God teaches us gentleness through other people is by simply allowing us to to control our emotions by not responding in a rude way because of 
different Christians' personalities. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and do not name any names, right? We're not talking out loud here. There will be Christians who have different personalities than you. They will be different personality types. They will be A-types or B-types or whatever there are, right? There's otters and dogs and seals and all sorts of ways of characterizing personalities in this world, and we're all different. We oftentimes are different, and instead of allowing those things to rub us wrong, instead of being annoyed and frustrated and allowing those differences to cause well, confusion and and hurt and conflict, guess what? God wants to use those different personalities to teach us to be gentle, to teach us to not respond with anger or rudeness to those people's different personalities. So, for example, you may be like me, and you may be introverted at the core, that doesn't mean I don't like people. That just means I, I want to be by myself sometimes. That just means I'm, sh- I'm shy and I'm scared. And, and sometimes I get nervous in social, social settings. You may be like me. You may be an introverted. And the people who are not introverted uh, say the person who is, quote, they're loud. The person who is obnoxious. The, the type of person you may see is domineering. You know what? Uh, they may strike you as just a bit pushy. And you don't like them if you're an introvert. Well, guess what? They're just different than you. Maybe you are task-oriented. Maybe you're the get-the-job-done. No need to talk about details. No need to talk about social stuff. No, no, no need for pleasantries. What's the task? Let's get it done. Maybe you're that kind of personality. And, and you know what? The kind of person that really bothers you, I think, because I'm not like that, I think the kind of person that, and that's not a demeaning thing, I'm just not that, My guess is the kind of person that bothers you is the socialite, the person who always wants to talk, the person who has so many details that it it makes your eyeballs roll and it comes out your ears, the kind of person that they just talk, 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 and you're like, they don't get anything done, and they're driving me batty. Well, guess what? You're not right, and they're not wrong. You're just very different. Maybe you're a planner. Maybe you're an organizer. This is not me either. I don't really plan well, and I don't organize well. But if you are a planner and if you are an organizer, my guess is that the kind of person that drives you bonkers that you need to be gentle with is the spontaneous person, the spontaneous guy, the spontaneous girl. They just want to up and do things. They're kind of, kind of rash. You, you, you see them as, as rash and, and a bit impetuous, right? They just up and do things. They don't think about it. By way of illustration, uh, my wife tends to be an organizer and planner, and I am not so much. I tend to be a little more spontaneous, This is illustrated by the fact that when we plan a trip and we get ready for a trip, uh, we we handle it quite differently in our packing styles. How about you? When do you you pack for a trip? Uh, Towards the end of the month, we're going to be taking a trip uh, with Shelly's folks, and it was about a week or two ago when my wife said, I I just can't help it. I have to start packing a month plus out. And so she got all the toiletries ready, and she got everything. You know, she didn't pack everything, but she, she started to get things ready. Well, you know what? For me... When do I pack? When do you think I pack? The day before or maybe the day of, depending upon how much time I have before I have to go. That's just how I do it. Why go ahead and do the work now when I can do it later, you know? I might need some of those clothes. I might need some of those toiletries. And sometimes, you know, that can cause a rub. But here's the deal. When we respond with gentleness, when we respond with gentleness to these different personalities that God has given us, God is shaping a new creation character in me and you. So we've talked about humility. We've talked about gentleness. Well, how does God want to shape patience in us? This one is probably the hardest. 
How, how does God want to make us into patient people who bear with one another in love? Well, I would suggest to you that God teaches us not to retaliate, not to break off the relationship, not to seek revenge, not to, to wallow in bitterness and anger that's under the surface in our relationship with that person. He allows us to have patience and to learn patience by allowing other Christians to hurt us. So I want to ask you a question again. Have you ever been hurt by another Christian? Have you ever been hurt by another Christian? Don't say names. Don't think evil thoughts. It's just a question. Have you ever been, thought, have you ever been hurt by another Christian? Maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was unintentional. I guarantee you, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you have been hurt by another Christian. But here's a second question. Have you ever hurt another Christian? Have you ever been the one doing the hurting? Have you ever been the one intentionally or unintentionally doing the hurting? If you've been in church for any number of of times or years, the answer to both of those questions is what, church? Yes, absolutely. I do the hurting and I get hurt. That's what happens in the family. That's what happens among people who are born again and new and yet we still have the flesh. We hurt each other intentionally and unintentionally. But you know what? The good news, the silver lining there, and not that we minimize hurt or sin or offense at all, but the silver lining is that God wants to teach us something when we're hurt. God wants to teach us patience. That's what Paul says. That's what this term means. It means when you're hurt, you love them anyway, and you don't retaliate, and you simply put up with them. That's what Paul's saying. He wants us to be that way because he wants us to be like Christ. And so what could this look like? What is What does it mean? I think it means we fail to retaliate. It means we choose to treat them in love when we choose to do number one. When we choose to talk to the person instead of about the person. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been hurt and not talked to the person that hurt you, but talked about the person that hurt you? I think we all have. The Bible says, no, if you're hurt, if you're offended, if you're sinned against, what should you do? You go to them. You go to them and you let them know that you are hurt and that you are offended and you put the ball in their court. And so we talk to the person who hurt us rather than talking about the person that hurt us. Or or maybe, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we think that's too forward. So what do we do? We let it simmer. We let it stew. We avoid the person. We may give them kind of dirty glances across the church building or in the cafe, right? We just, we just, we just don't deal with it. With it. We, don't, we don't let them know, but that's not good. You know why? Because it's killing us on the inside, and we're brewing with bitterness and hurt and anger. And that's why the Bible says when you're hurt, you go to them to seek reconciliation. Secondly, I think God shapes patience in us when we choose to pursue reconciliation, when we know that we've hurt someone else. So it goes both ways. When we, do the, uh, when we get the hurting, we go to the person. When we do the hurting, guess what the Bible says? What does Jesus say? If you, you know that you've sinned against someone and you're, you're, you're offering your offering, what do you do? Do you offer it? No, you don't offer it. You go and you seek reconciliation with that person because you know either in, in reality or in, uh, or in theory whether the, the, the hurt was real or perceived. It doesn't matter. You go to them because you know that you did something to hurt them. And that's hard, church. Isn't it hard to do that? But that's what the Bible says. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. And so notice how God has designed it. You get hurt, where do you go? To the person who hurts you. You're, you're maybe the person who did the hurting, intentionally or not. Where do you go? Towards the person you hurt. Guess how it's supposed to work? You meet each other, right? That's how God has designed this idea. And when we do these things, what is God doing? He's preserving unity in the body for sure. But, but, but also, he's making us humble. 
He's making us gentle. He's making us patient. He's shaping our character as we obey his word. So in closing, each of us have to choose how we're going to live the Christian life. Remember the illustration of the uh, Special Olympics. There were probably uh, four or five or six other runners that decided to keep running the race. But then there were two who decided to come back. So which are you more like? Do you view the Christian life as an individual race? You don't need anyone. You don't need any help. You can disregard other people's needs. You can disregard their differences, their different thoughts, their different preferences, their their different personalities. You can disregard when they sin against you because, hey, the Christian life is about you and God, right? Well, no, that's not entirely true. The Christian life is about you and God, but it's also about you and your neighbor. It's also about you and your brother. It's about you and your sister. And so we can choose how we're going to run the race. Are we going to run it by ourselves? Are we going to run it with other Christians? Are we going to lock arm in arm and run the Christian race, recognizing that even though we have different thoughts and different preferences and different personalities, and even though they may sin against us, we will still lock arm in arm and run the Christian race together? What are you going to do? How are we going to do it, church? I suggest we lock arms together and we cross the finish line together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this very practical and helpful text as Paul dealt with Christians just like us and he recognized all sorts of things that could creep into a church, that can creep into personal relationships to disrupt those relationships and ultimately to disrupt the church to bring disunity where there should be (coughs) unity and discord where there should be love. Father, keep us. Would you help us by taking on these attitudes, by taking on a humble heart, by taking on a gentle spirit, by being patient even when we're wronged? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in us to respond in these ways and in doing so to kill the rats that are in the basement of our lives and that we might be new people because of it. And so preserve the unity of the church and make us new, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen.